All right, so we are talking about kingdom culture. We kicked off this series last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to go and watch the, watch the, um, uh, the live stream from last week. It's still be on our Facebook. And you don't, by the way, need a Facebook account to watch that. So, um, but it's, it's kind of foundational for this whole series that we're going to be in for a while called Kingdom Culture. And what we're looking at is how Jesus is the king. And, and, and just like every kingdom has a culture, the kingdom of God has a culture. And, and what in that culture comes down, it should influence things here on earth, and especially the people who call Jesus king. And so we believe that Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. And so uh, we believe that he is the promised Messiah who came to bring heaven to earth. So that's why Jesus prays, hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we want is the culture of heaven to invade the culture of earth. And when the king comes, just like every person in every place has a culture, the kingdom of God has a culture, and there is going to be oftentimes a clash of cultures. And so one of the things that we're going to be looking at, we're kind of like doing a this versus that throughout the series. We're looking at kind of the culture that we live in versus the culture of the kingdom of God. And we said there are three things when the kingdom of God, when the culture of the kingdom of God invades, it does three things. First, it exposes our values. So when the kingdom of God shows up, it shows us what do we really value. The second thing it does, it actually overcomes evil. So where there's evil present, it overcomes evil, and it does it for the purposes of bringing freedom. So that's the third thing it does. So it exposes our values, it overcomes evil, and it brings freedom. And here's the deal. I gave this kind of warning label on the can last week. This is going to offend all of us because all of us live and breathe the culture that we live in right now, and we're often not aware of how different the king and his kingdom is than what we think. And so, I, I, like, so we just have to have a, like, adopt a, a posture and a spirit of humility, like, to, to let God do what he wants to do in our hearts and, and, and not let the offense of the things that are different, like, keep us from receiving what God might have for us, okay? And so here you go. I want you to put your seat in full and upright position and buckle your seatbelts, all right? So here's our scripture for today. This is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can, you give, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Yeah, you know, we only pick the fluffy passages here around fusion, right? Everyone's like, oh, really? We're talking about this today? Yes, we're talking about this today. One of the things that shapes any culture is the leader. So that... Every culture and every people group have some understanding of what a leader is and the leadership that's there. So, so people look to the leadership, and the leadership shapes the culture. We all kind of have a sense when we're in different places, whether it's at work or whether we're talking about the government or whatever it is, of kind of who's in charge, who, who's the person making the decisions, and that influences the culture. The leader or leaders, for good or for evil, shape what happens in any culture. They're kind of at the center of everything that happens in a particular culture. And regardless of the, the, the system or type of leadership, as the leader goes, usually there goes the culture, 
Like, you can usually look at a culture and say, ah, I see the influence of that leader. So let's just think about some silly examples right now. If you think about the show The Office, think about how the culture of The Office is shaped by Michael Scott. Yeah? Or Lisa Nope in Parks and Recreation. I'm sorry, not Lisa, Leslie Nope. So, um, uh, you know, or Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, Right? We could, we could rattle off these kind of different kind of like, they're caricatures of leadership, but there's a reason why a caricature plays because sometimes it's true. Or maybe it's Woody in Toy Story. Or maybe it's more like current Ted Lasso in Ted Lasso, like shaping the culture of a place. They're silly examples, but you can see how the leader kind of influences a culture. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's clear that we're talking about a leader who is a king. So in the kingdom of God, it's a monarchy. He, Jesus is the king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. I should hear an amen coming from that. Amen. And it's, he's not just any king. He is the only righteous, holy, perfect leader that has ever existed in human history. He's the only one worthy to be called king. In the book of Revelation, we have all of heaven erupting in praise because he's the only one willing and, and, and actually worthy to, to rule. All other kings and kingdoms fail because fallen, flawed human beings are at the center of the leadership. Despite the best intentions of every culture throughout human history, uh, there is a bug in the machine, so to speak except for when it comes to Jesus. Like, I was thinking about this. Have you ever, like, been making, like, a recipe, cooking something, and you used an ingredient that, like, you weren't, in, like, meant to use? Like, you know, like, it didn't belong. Like, it called for cinnamon and, it, cinnamon, and you accidentally picked up the cumin. They don't taste the same, guys. And if you put that in the recipe, it doesn't matter what you do to try to doctor it up. It's ruined. Or if you've ever gotten sour milk out, like, of the, of the, and not knowing it's sour. This doesn't happen to anyone else but our house, right? Yeah. And you go to make some chocolate milk, and, and you're like, it doesn't matter how much chocolate you add to the sour milk, it's still gross. Like, guys, this is the status of humanity and our leadership. Like, there's something fundamentally flawed with human beings and our ability to actually lead well, so it doesn't matter what you try to do to doctor it up. It's fundamentally flawed. We keep trying to throw extra ingredients at it, but it just doesn't fix it. But Jesus rules and reigns in love and in power. Jesus rules and reigns perfectly in mercy and in justice. His kingdom brings freedom and it empowers his people. He is a perfect king. And, that, and his kingdom is one in which he empowers his people and shares his power and his authority with people. That's awesome, guys. It's unlike anything else on the face of the earth. It's unlike any religion on the face of the earth. No one claims what we claim about our Savior. And this king is so different. Like, actually, this is, this is an awesome thing. Uh, most New Testament scholars uh, will, will tell you that uh, the story that's, that's pictured in the Gospels of Jesus going to the cross, there's actually all kinds of cues that a person reading the Bible should see. This is the enthronement of a king. But think about the enthronement of our king ends up on a cross. He ends up exalted by being raised up and hung on a cross. Think about what's put on his head? A crown of thorns. They put robes on him, but they do, it, they do so to, to mock him. But at the end of the day, he's being crowned king. And guess what? The devil and all of the earth doesn't know what they're doing. 
They're actually enthroning him as the conquering king. That's awesome, guys. There's no other king like him. What kind of king does that? Philippians 2 tells us this, Philippians 2, 6. Who, he's talking about Jesus, it tells us first, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Then it says this, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Man, we could talk about that. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. A king becomes like a servant, what? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every other name, and the name of Jesus. That, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and, and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of the Father. That's our king, guys. That's our king. There's no king like that who has all power and authority and sets it aside to come to earth, live as a human being, being obedient unto death. There's no king like that. So, so what we should have in the kingdom of God is a king-centered culture. Our king is unlike any king, but at the end of the day, he's meant to be at the center of what we do and what we think. We're meant to have a king-centered culture. It's meant to our culture and the culture of the people of God is meant to be shaped by the king, being oriented around who he is by his desires. And even in this verse that I just read that, that sets it up, it says, have the same mind in you that's in Christ Jesus. So whatever the king has, that's the mindset that you should have. It's all about being king-centered. So here's a helpful framework. This helps me think about what is a king-centered culture. So here, this, this helps me. First of all, his word is the final word. So his word is the final word. His work becomes our work, and his ways shape our ways. So his word is the final word. His work becomes our work, and his ways shape our ways. That's what a king-centered culture looks like. Let me explain. When a king speaks... It's the final statement on the matter. <laughs> There's no debate. <laughs> There's not like, a, what, what do you think about this? You, no. When the king speaks, it's his word against everything else. All other opinions, all of her prevailing wisdom all bows down. Have you ever looked at like the teachings of Jesus and been like, this guy doesn't like, he doesn't answer to anyone. I don't know anyone watching The Chosen. If not, get on The Chosen train. Like, the, the representation of Jesus in that show is just so incredible. He wields this power and this authority, and what he says is kind of the final word, but he doesn't do it in a way where he's heavy-handed and mean. It's just, it's just so awesome. And, and actually, this is true of every kingdom. So in, in the olden days when there used to be kings, there would actually be people, when the king would make a proclamation, there would be people that would go out to the countryside to go out and make the proclamation of the king. They would read this declaration. And that was law. That's our king, guys. So also, so that's the, that's the word of the king, the, the, the works of the king. Whatever the king thinks is important to do, that's the thing that should matter to us. So the, the, the priorities of the king and his projects and the things he thinks are important for building the kingdom are, are essentially the same for the people. We don't get to have like other options or opinions. Like, so if the king says, again, thinking about old times, we're building a bridge, guess what we're doing? We're building a bridge. You're setting aside whatever your agenda was to do whatever the king has to say. 
And that becomes our thing. And lastly, the whole idea of the ways, his ways becoming our ways, whatever the king thinks that we should value and are the customs of the king, that influences the culture. They become the people's ways. It's just the way that it is. So the kingdom of God is meant to be king, a king-centered culture where Jesus' word is the final word, where his work becomes our work and his ways shape our ways. I'll say more about that in just a little bit. Now, if this, guys, let's just be honest, if this was merely a human kingdom, all of us here in the United States, us good rebels would be like, no, right? We don't, we don't stand for this. But we're not talking about a human kingdom. We're talking about the divine king who rules and reigns over everything. The earth is his footstool, right? And so we're not, we have to like put aside our notions of what we think and instead think on his terms, think on scripture's terms. Remember, we're talking about the only good and wise king, the only king whose law is love. Remember, this is his culture. And remember that when he invades, his culture is going to expose our values, which are in conflict with his. It's going to overcome the evil that stands in the way of that, and it's going to bring freedom. That's right. So if we want the culture of the kingdom of God, the king has to be the center. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But I've got some bad news. That's not the culture that we live in. It's not the culture that we live in. The culture that we live in is a me-centered culture, not a king-centered culture. Instead of the kingdom of God, we're more influenced by the kingdom of self. Rather than the king being the center of our world, we, as human beings, have made ourselves the center of our world instead of the king. Here in our kind of Western kind of way of thinking, all over, although this is common to all humanity, the thrones of our hearts have been occupied by ourselves rather than by the king of kings. So what's happened for us? Our word is our word, right? Truth is whatever you want it to be. Your truth, Right? rather than his truth. Our works are our works. What really matters is my calling, my career, my gifts, my values. Our ways are our ways. Whatever seems right to me. Whatever to do, I should just be able to do that because it's what I, I value. So we understand and see the world through a me-centered kind of world rather than a king-centered kind of world. And we're going to do something a little different. We, Meg has spent a significant amount of time over this last year digging into this particular issue about what does this look like to have a me-centered or self-centered culture. And I thought rather than me like, tell you some things, I would be great for her to share some of what she's learned. So Meg, I want to invite you to come on up. Can you guys give Meg a hand? Him. Obviously, there's some people that do want that, right? They're like, if I'm going to be working out, I want to look at something like myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should do a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself while I work on myself as I leave through myself magazine, read how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to my Facebook page and look at photos of myself. Read what myself has written about myself. Yo soy muy importante. Oh, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of us in here 
think that we're in a me-centered culture. Yeah, okay, so my job's done. Good night, everyone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I'm not here to convince you that we're in a me-centered culture. I think that it's very obvious, but I don't think it's always obvious how that manifests itself. So I want us to take time to reflect on how we are in a me-centered culture and how did we get here. Um, if you want to go to the next slide, babe. Yeah. So in 2013, Time Magazine put out a cover story called The Me, Me, Me Generation. In the article, the author shared some statistics giving evidence of what all of us probably feel is true, that our culture has become obsessed with the self. Some of these statistics that the author shared were, go to the next slide. Thanks, babe. My, my husband's running slides out there. He's cute. <laughs> um, narcissistic personality disorder, or NPD, is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than 1982. Ouch. A recent study showed that 40% believe they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. Three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person rather than a senator, according to a 2007 survey. And in the 1950s, when families were displaying a wedding photo, a school photo, and maybe a military photo in their homes, the average middle-class American family today walks among 85 pictures of themselves and their pets. And I can attest to this because we have a, we call it our hall of love with all of the people that we love on the wall. And I'm always like, oh, look at us. Um, <laughs> so most of these statistics are aimed at teenagers. You know, we can disparage their generation and be like, oh, they're so selfish. Oh, and that makes us sound really, really old when we say things like that. Um, but there's cross-generational generational indicators that say the same things. Um, there's a trend that's happening nowadays called uh, sologamy. Maybe some of you have heard this. Maybe you've watched Sex in the City, where Carrie Bradshaw did this, where one marries oneself. Um, it's a popular trend that wedding businesses and travel agencies have capitalized on, where they'll throw a wedding for a single person, usually a female, where they just lavish on themselves that day. They want all the attention and self-love and affirming. And, um, and in ways, I think that it can be very healing, but I think it also just indicates where we are as a culture. I can't imagine that happening 100 years ago 20 years ago even, really, it's crazy. Um, it's evident in our language. You know, Chael mentioned um, your truth, that idea of it's my truth, you do you, that's another popular one. Um, we call each other kings and queens, like slay king, you know. Uh, we take selfies, and then just all of social media is catered to display yourself. Um, slogans and advertising cater to the self. We, we have things that are popular like, have it your way. Um, L'Oreal says, because you're worth it. And Coca-Cola, like personally name, they have the personal names on their bottles, you know? So that's all focusing. They want, that. there's a market for it. There's a market for catering to you on a very personal level. 
Um, algorithms and the internet are now catering to the individual so much that big tech can try and predict anything you want before you know you need it based on your search history, demographics, phone usage, and all these things subtly tell us that we're the center of the universe. Reality TV shows, which Times columnist Joel Stein calls documentaries about narcissists. It's pretty accurate. They're sadly not going anywhere, these, these documentaries. In 2019, um, unscripted series, which is reality shows, represented 76% of, of the 25 highest rated original series on cable. Which is, I mean, if you ever want to hear a diatribe about the hatred of reality shows, you could talk to my husband. I mean, he just loathes them to no end. I'm kind of neutral. I have some guilty, guilty things that I watch that I won't confess up here because it's not time for that. Um, <laughs> the self-care industry has exploded into many new forms. In 2016, the industry was worth $9.9 .9 billion, but by 2022, they expect it to be about $13 billion or more. Um, satirical sites, you know, satirizing self-care have popped up. One of my favorite being Power of Self-Care on Instagram. I don't know if any of you follow this, but they have some, some good nuggets. Uh, gentle reminder, people are endlessly charmed by how absolutely obsessed with yourself you are. Just real words of wisdom, or like their next one. There is no such thing as valid criticism of you. Just toxic people and haters. So they're kind of mocking how everything has just become about you, you, you. And, um, and I can appreciate that, you know. So it's not just this day and age, though, that showcases our Western obsession with the self. The rise of the modern concepts of self, obsessed with expressing individualism and autonomy, got a major boost in the 1920s, this is something that I learned in a documentary I watched this week, um, when the father of public re relations, Edward Bernays, employed his uncle Sigmund Freud's psychological techniques to help corporations start peddling products. Um, and the, the documentary chronicles how he influenced cultural change in the US and then beyond. Um, and it's very interesting. It's on YouTube. If you ever are looking for something to watch, I recommend it. So he, he really helped change the way that we uh, saw and bought products because it was no longer based on need, like so many ads before then were, but it was now based on desire. So I have this small clip from the documentary. He organized fashion shows in the department stores and paid celebrities to repeat the new and essential message. You bought things not just for need, but to express your inner sense of yourself to others. There's a psychology of dress. Have you ever thought about it? How it can express your character? You all have interesting characters, but some of them are all hidden. I wonder why you all want to dress always the same, with the same hats and the same coats. I'm sure all of you are interesting and have wonderful things about you, but looking at you in the street, you all look so much the same. And that's why I'm talking to you about the psychology of dress. Try and express yourselves better in your dress. Bring out certain things that you think are hidden. I wonder if you've thought of this angle of your personality. 
Isn't that fascinating? I just love these old clips that, that come out. I just think it's so fascinating. Um, so I'm not saying here, by the way, that you can't express yourself through dress. Like, I don't want you to hear me wrong because I love picking out clothes that like say, oh, that's me, you know, or like in, when I was in high school, I, I got a nose ring when I was 18, which, you know, 20 years ago, not a lot of people had nose rings. So I am like, I think I started that trend rising in in this culture now because I had one back then, so it was about me, wasn't it? Um, but, you know, I like, I like expressing about, like individual ideas and things like that, so don't hear me wrong that I'm not saying that you can't do that or you should be ashamed if you do that. I'm saying there's something bigger happening around us that we need to be aware of, and we do need to ask ourselves, why am I doing that? Um, so anyway, Edward Bernays, Nothing like that had happened on that scale before or in such a, like, a public eye. Um, so some cultural commentators have coined the rise in individualism or the kingdom of me as the sovereignty of self. And I think that that's really fitting. So I'm going to just keep saying it so that it sticks in our brains. Um, the, the sovereignty of self, the idea of being sovereign is that the individual is the source and authority for decisions, identity, protection, provision, everything you can name. The self is king. The self is queen. Um, in short, you rule, right? Uh, Carl Truman, in, um, he's a cultural commentator and, and a professor. He wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, wrote, if the inner psychological life of the individual as sovereign, then identity becomes as potentially unlimited as the human imagination. So we basically have all these kings and queens who are now running around saying, this is my truth, this is mine, and we're, we're, our lands are clashing, right? All, left and right, everywhere we look, we're seeing all this discord and not understanding because everyone is like, I am on the throne, this, what you're saying offends me, and what you're doing offends me, and now I'm offended, and because we have put ourselves in the place where only God is supposed to be. Um, the church, sadly, is not immune to the kingdom of self. Celebrity pastors worried about their brands, public moral failings, greed, corruption, all these things we've heard about in the headlines that it happens in the church as well. And you and I are not immune to the kingdom of self. Um, uh, this was like, <laughs> when I told Rob I was going to be talking about this, he's like, what are you going to say about yourself? I'm like, I don't know. So then he helped me. He had some ideas of how I definitely, um, I definitely have the kingdom of self. Um, so here's some ways that, that we were thinking that I do this. Um, they aren't specific examples though, right? They're kind of vague. So if you wanna know like things that really happen or how this manifests, you can come talk to me privately afterward, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I, I struggle for control of my own destiny and I struggle letting go of my own agenda, right? So that is saying to other people around me, look, what I am doing right now is more important than whatever you need. Um, I do that a lot, and that has been like, that's my struggle, right, with the kingdom of self. It's like, I know what's best, I'm afraid of the future, and so I am just going to keep this in control. In fact, 
full disclosure, like I developed OCD when I was young because of that fear of, of letting go and not being in control. Um, and, um, but that, this is not to say that I don't do things to take care of myself, right? We always worry like, well, if, if we're not focused on ourselves, how are we gonna care for ourselves? We're just gonna be thinking about other people all the time. Listen, I get regular massages. I get a cleaning lady sometimes, and there's no shame, okay? And my husband would say that I get a lot of Starbucks. I don't know if that's true, but he says it, and so. Um, anyway, I fall into the trap of thinking that I'm this rational, autonomous being. And autonomy and sovereignty flies in the face of the original creation and the message of Scripture. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, 1 Corinthians. So how did we get here? Sure, the 20th century has seen a rise in the ideas, uh, these Western ideals dominating other cultural norms and the fact that we're all so interconnected now. But each generation for, and for centuries has had this struggle. So what was the original temptation that Eve faced? It was when the serpent said to her in the garden, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. From original sin, the temptation to be autonomous, entitled, worthy of praise, attributes reserved only for God, the temptations had followed us through the centuries and is countercultural to the kingdom of God. There's a quote from theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who said, we can see that we are dealing with a confrontation which has never ended and is constantly assuming new forms. The kingdom itself is nothing new. It's just, it's been around since the beginning. It's just assuming new forms. And we need to be aware as believers of what are those new forms and how am I interacting with them on a daily basis? Because our allegiance is not to ourselves, it's to God. And so I think Jesus gave us another, another way and greater understanding of how to really combat this idea of the kingdom of self. That was better than I could have said it. So uh, that, that's awesome. Uh, so I think everyone should do this. I think you should go home and ask your significant other whether or not you have kingdom of me, kingdom of stuff. Don't do this. Uh, I don't have enough time to pastorally counsel everyone in their marriages. So, uh, so, don't, so don't do that. But, but, but here's the deal. Here's what Jesus had to say about this. So we started out with it. 16 Verse 24, then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up, themse take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This verse does not mean that we're supposed to hate ourselves and have self-hatred, self-harm. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to neglect ourselves and that we're not important. It doesn't mean that we ignore our needs and wants and become a desireless person. That is not what Jesus is talking about. That's Buddhism. That's not Christianity, to live without desires. That is not at all what, what Jesus is talking about. Actually, anyone through like discipline and willpower can do that. Just deny themselves. You might not think so, but plenty of people who don't have Jesus and don't have the Holy Spirit live very disciplined lives, right? 
I mean, you could go, I, I, was, I was watching something the other day, and this yoga instructor was like, um, like talking about something. I was like, man, this person is incredibly disciplined. Doesn't know Jesus. I'm confident of that by, by what he was talking about. And I was like, this is awesome. So self-denial is, there's nothing spiritual about that in and of itself. Uh, actually, Martin Luther, kind of the, the father of the Protestant tradition, uh, used to harm himself with a whip and beat himself and would starve himself and would sit outside uh, in the cold weather and, and like, and without any clothing or without a blanket because he was trying to make himself more righteous through that. And at the end of, the, at the end of doing it, he's like, this isn't helping, right? So, so Christianity, as well as all, all world religions, I think there's an element that if we're just to live an ascetic lifestyle and deny ourselves, that somehow we're becoming more, more righteous. But that's not what Jesus said. Like, if we stop short at deny yourself, take up your cross, then we're, we're missing something. The goal isn't self-denial unto an end in itself, but submitting to Jesus. Taking all of our desires, all of our life, and saying, it's all yours. That's, that's the thing. It's submitting all of who we are to the call of Jesus. The call is to follow him, not to deny yourself. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference. So Jesus knows, though, that if we're going to come and follow him, that there is going to be a conflict of kingdoms, that the kingdom of me is going to be in conflict with the king of kings. And so that's why he tells us and invites us, hey, come and follow me, but as you do, you're going to have to deny yourself. You can't be in charge and me in charge. That's not how kingdoms work. And so Jesus tells all of those who would be his followers who want the culture of the kingdom of God, hey, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. As long as your word is the final authority in your life, as long as your work is your priority and your ways inform the majority of your time and attention, you are king and Jesus is not. Does that make sense? And so let me just state the obvious here, guys. This is a high bar, right? This is a high bar of discipleship. But here's the thing. We take our cues from the king, and Jesus had every opportunity to give a softer message. He, he had every opportunity to do that. But you know what Jesus always does? He makes it harder for people. <laughs> like every time he gathers the crowd, Jesus says things to scatter the crowd. Like eat my flesh and drink my blood to a bunch of Jewish people. Like, this is like, you don't say that, right? But Jesus continues to do this, and so Jesus knows because he knows that the way to follow him is narrow. He really wants us to count the cost, to reckon with what we will have to give up in order to get, to get what he has for us. Actually, Jesus says, look, if, if you're living this way, if you're living with the kingdom of me at, at, at the center, then it reveals you value your life and your way better than the life I can give you in my way. And so remember, his kingdom exposes our values. Here's what he says in just the next verse. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or who can give anyone an exchange for their soul? The call of Jesus is literally... And not just figuratively, guys. The call to entrust him with our very lives. The imagery that Jesus uses here in this passage is of someone taking the beam that goes across the cross and actually carrying it. He actually, he's painting this picture of someone who is marching to their own death. And so they have to carry their own cross, just like Jesus himself did. Remember the passage that I read earlier? Jesus did what he's asking us to do. He was obedient even to death. You guys, that should blow your mind. 
Our Savior isn't asking us anything to do other than what he did and what he made a way for us to do. And so when he says this to his disciples, they're not thinking figuratively about what is my cross to bear. They're literally thinking about death. And the reason why is because it's the most extreme thing that we can give up. Jesus knows for us as his followers, if we're willing to literally entrust him with our actual life, we will entrust him with all of the other things that are in our life. There's nothing else we wouldn't be willing to give up. And if we aren't willing to give that, he knows, okay, this is revealing a conflict of values. This person who wants to come and be my disciple desires their convenience and their comfort and their success more than they desire what I have to, to bring. And the problem is that a me-centered way of life isn't just a competing value. Like Meg talked about, it's at the very core of human sinfulness. The me-centered life, while it's not always overtly evil, it's always evil at its core. It's what got us into the mess that we're in in the first place. So why is this such an issue? Because Jesus says this, that way of life is, one, it's not compatible with the kingdom that I'm bringing, and two, it's not what you were designed for. We think that a me-centered life, this is, the, this is what we're buying and selling, the me-centered life will bring us happiness and freedom. It will make us feel whole in some way, but in reality, it leads us to bondage and ruin. And Jesus says, you're gonna forfeit your own soul living this way. That's harsh words. Like to be alive, but not really alive. And our, king, and our kingdom, remember, wants to overcome evil. So he says, look, I'm not gonna let that stand in your life. I'm gonna call it out. Like I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna let you be in the endless trap of being a slave to your desires, as the apostle Paul would say, a slave to your flesh, to spend more time, more energy on things that you think will make you happy, but won't really last. Instead, Jesus wants us to put him at the center and live in the freedom that he brings when he's the ruler. Because in his words and his works and in his ways is where we discover who we were designed to be and how we were designed to live. We, we, when he is the king and his word is worth, we hear truth instead of the lies. The lies that the enemy tells, the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies of the people around us. What does Jesus say about this? Should be the thing that's on our mind all the time. When we work, our work can actually have eternal value, no matter what it is that we're doing, right? Rather than kind of spinning our wheels with more temporal kind of success and being caught in the rat race that all of us are caught in. And when we live his way, we get to live with a burden that is light and a yoke that's easy, right? Like, I know that this word is a harsh word, but Jesus says, look, if you come to me and learn from me, I will teach you how to live this way. That's just so appealing to me. I don't know about you, but I'm just like, man, I have been carrying a heavy burden. I'm constantly having to remind me, doing it Jesus' way is meant to feel like a light burden and an easy yoke. So when I'm not feeling like that, I know I'm somehow living outside of the design of Jesus. You see, a king-centered life and culture is how the whole world is designed to work. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I love the way the message puts this. Here's what it says. 
we look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the sun and see God's original purpose in everything that was created for everything, absolute everything, above or below, visible or invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and he holds it all together right up until this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds all things together like a head does the body. He was supreme in the beginning and the leading and, and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he is there, towering above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things and animals and atoms, get properly fixed and put together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death and the blood that was poured out on the cross. That is his vision for humanity, friends, that we would come under the lordship of Jesus because it, he is at the center of the entire universe. And things don't work in our lives or in our world when we somehow operate as though that's not the case. And so what he's wanting to do is bring freedom to our lives, awaken us to, to the call of how we were meant to live, not just oppressive. We think of deny yourself, take up your crosses, like I'm gonna have to give up things I love. Yes, in order to, to, to do and to be what God designed you to do and be, you will discover new loves in Jesus. You will find yourself going, I didn't know I could be this free. Does your life seem disordered and chaotic? Put Jesus back at the center, make him king again. He's not an add-on to our life. He is life. He is the reality, and the only way that life actually works is with him on the throne and him as a center. And so, so I'm just going to say this, and we're going we're to transition here in just a minute. You might be saying, okay, well, what then, how does self-care and boundaries and those kinds fit into the picture? What, how does that all work? Well, these aren't bad things, as Meg was talking about. They're just not meant to be the main thing. What I would say if we're asking that question, well, then what about how do I care for myself? We're already asking the wrong question. We're already revealing the clash of cultures, right? And, and guys, I'm saying this because this is the question I ask. And I'm assuming you, some of you are, are there thinking about this. Because probably what you've experienced is abuse. Probably what you've experienced is kind of overworked in a church culture. Probably what you've heard is this kind of being used to get you to do more stuff for the church. Guys, if you leave this church and you live a radical life for Jesus, I'm totally fine with that. I don't want you to do that, but I'm, this isn't for you to serve more here and do more stuff here. This is for you to live free. And, and chances are you probably, have, you've been, you probably haven't had anyone teach you kind of how to actually care for yourself in a godly and proper way. And so we're so disoriented around this and our culture tells us you gotta care for you, you gotta care for you. And I'm saying that's a secondary question. The question is, is Jesus at the center and how does he inform it all? The last couple of weekends we've been doing some camping. Uh, took Charlie on a trip and then Chloe on a trip. And uh, I was thinking, I was arranging the firewood, and I was thinking about all these, these pictures you see of firewood and movies you see where people arrange firewood. And you look at it, and it's like, if you actually made a fire that way, it wouldn't actually burn. It looks pretty. But in order for fire to burn, it has to be arranged in a specific way. 
It needs a spark. It needs enough room for there to be oxygen to be able to fuel the fire. And there has to be enough wood. The wood has to be touching each other, but not too close. It has to be just right. All of this has to fit just in the right way in order for the fire to burn. But it's about the fire burning. And I feel like some of us are treating all of these different kinds of things in our lives. We're trying to arrange the wood all pretty. And we've forgotten that at the, at the end of the day, we're supposed to burn for him. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how pretty the firewood looks and all your paces and your rhythms and all, all that stuff is so important and it's so good, but it's all for his glory. And you will find freedom when you put him at the center. Every part of our life is meant to be for the king and his glory. We do self-care in boundaries because somehow it blesses his heart. Not simply because it blesses our our heart. We sacrifice and serve not to get something out of it because it blesses his heart and brings him glory. We're supposed to rearrange our lives around him and around what he wants to do. And if we'll do that, he will set us ablaze with him. And we get to experience wholeness and healing and hope when he is truly at the center. So which culture are you living in right now? Are you living in a me-centered culture or are you living in a king-centered culture? Forget the world out there. It's easy to look at the world and kind of point fingers. And, yeah, look at those people there. You know, I'm talking look inward right here, right now. It's the culture of your heart. Is it a king-centered culture or is it a me-centered culture? Is it a kingdom of self or is it the kingdom of God? Is the king ruling and reigning in your heart? Are Jesus' words the final authority in your life or any authority at all when's the last time and I have to ask myself this question here guys so please don't take this as me preaching at you or down to you when's the last time I asked Jesus his opinion on something what do you think about what I'm going to do with my time today Jesus what do you think about this vacation that I'm going to take Jesus what do you think about this money that I'm going to spend Jesus What do you think about who I should be spending my time with, Jesus? You you know, I'm just going to say I fall into the trap and I just, I I don't do those things often enough. And it reveals that my ideas and my thoughts are ruling me and not his ideas and his thoughts. By the way, I'm just going to go ahead and push all the buttons today. If Jesus only ever affirms what you think, you're probably not hearing Jesus. Every once in a while, Jesus is going to say something to you that doesn't feel good. One, one pastor that I know Mark and a couple other people like so calls it a chocolate-covered razor blade. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's this weird way of kind of coming, coming at you. It's a surprise. Like, but the reality is actually there's something like there's really beautiful if you will, uh, will allow the word of God to shape us. God has better for you than you think. He's better at leading me than I am at leading me. And so it would be good for you to ask what he thinks about certain things. Oh, man. I could talk about this one for a real long time, but I'm not going to. Is his, your, is his work your work? Are you building your kingdom or are you building his kingdom? What's the focus of your life? Now, I'm not talking about just doing church ministry. That's a part of it. But is the work that you do at your nine to five, is it for his glory or is it for your glory? 
Is it your work or is it his work? What about his ways? Are his, is it his ways or your ways? Are you living like Jesus? I've been living at a, at a, a hurried, ungodly pace for months now. And I feel the Lord's conviction about that. You know what I mean? Because I, I know it's not what God wants for me. It's not, even, it's not just about me being a healthier me. I, I mean, I think that God wants that for me. It's actually a lordship issue in my life. Do I trust him to do the work? Or am I going to overwork? <laughs> do I trust me or him? Am I going to live life his way? Or how about you? Now, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to take communion first. And we're going to take communion as a reminder that Jesus did for us exactly what he is asking us to do. Jesus goes to the death on the cross. If you don't have your communion elements, they're in the back. You can go ahead and grab those now. Jesus' death on the cross, his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, is the gateway to our freedom. So one of the key things that we can do is acknowledge our weakness before him, acknowledge our mistakes, and confess, Jesus, I've been in charge and you haven't. You're a worthy king. And so I want to put you back in charge in my life. Just a simple confession of faith. So we're going to take communion in just a second. And then we're, we're flipping our worship today. And here's why. We're going to worship for the next 20 minutes before we're done here in the service today. And the reason why we're doing this is this. Because I can give you rhythms and practices and here are some tips to go and try to live a king-centered life. But at the end of the day, the heart of a king-centered life is worship. Because worship reorients us. It should. If it's true worship, reorients us from looking down here to looking up. To having our gaze set on the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we're going to practice making him king. We collectively, not just you individually, but we collectively, we're going together right now as a family, put Jesus in his place at the center of our church right now. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for us for communion, and then we're going to go right into worship. And let is, let's exalt Jesus as king for the next 20 minutes. So, Lord, I'm so thankful that you are my king and Lord. I surrender to you. Everything that I have, God, is a gift from you. It all belongs to you, and it's all for you, Jesus. So let it all be for your glory right here and right now. I surrender to you. I thank you, Lord, that I am covered by the blood of the Lamb, that I bear no shame for my faults, God, because you bore the shame on the cross. You who had no sin became sin for me. So, God, I know that I get to run home to you right now. I don't have to come crawling home, God. I get to run home and that you are ready to embrace me, Father in heaven. So we right now proclaim your goodness over us, Lord, but we also confess that we have been in charge too much. So we say, Jesus, would you be Lord in this room? Whatever you want to do right now, Jesus, King Jesus, come and bring heaven into this room right now. Bring the culture of heaven into the culture of this room right now. Do whatever you want to do. We take the body and the blood as worship, and we sing our songs of worship in Jesus' name. Amen.